0: Father in heaven, we pray your spirit will be with us now as we open your word, um, speak to our hearts about compassion, in Jesus' name, amen. So I told you last Sabbath, uh, we read from uh, Acts chapter 4, and I told you last Sabbath that we would start there again, and we would spend a little time dealing with the implications of what's said there, so I want to start there again. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and bought the, and brought the proceeds. Of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need, so this was a remarkable time in the history of the church. There was this amazing community oneness, and you see it described here. they were of one heart and one soul. How often in your life have you been a part of a community that had that experience, that that community oneness, that engagement now. Now, in the context of that, we're, we're kind of in an interesting spot right now because a, a couple of weeks ago, even last Sabbath, we weren't sure, there was the possibility that at some point during this last week, we were going to face a rather severe hurricane coming into our area. Now, this is where it gets a little tough for us because, on the one hand, we're grateful to the Lord that we did not go through that and experience that. However, at the same time, it's very difficult to celebrate that when we know just off of our coast, not more than 100 miles, are a couple of islands that are utterly destroyed right now who bore the brunt of this hurricane while we somehow did not really have to face anything except... And maybe your lawn chair tipped over. I mean, that was about the worst of what happened to us. And on the one hand, we rejoice in that. But on the other hand, and this is one of those things I never understand, is that uh, how could a place like that, that could so ill afford such destruction, get so utterly destroyed, and we who continue to live fat, dumb, and happy come through this, we who could actually afford to rebuild ourselves, right? I don't understand these things. I understand the Lord's will in many areas, and, and He doesn't make these things clear to me. But it does touch our hearts, doesn't it? Now, now we'll get back to that in just a second, because there's this interesting dynamic that I think is at play, and you don't have to admit it out loud, but I think there are some of us who actually this Sabbath find ourselves living with a small degree of hurricane Disappointment. Because if I'm going to spend that much time getting ready for something, I'd kind of like it to happen. <laughs> and so we find ourselves, why is that experience? Well, I'll tell you why it is a little bit for me. A couple of years ago, we had Hurricane Irma. You remember that. And it wasn't terrible for us. It was terrible in some other places. But it was significant to the point where, where the, the, the county took over that land over there and there was all this debris on there for the longest time. It was a powerful experience. I got to know more of my neighbors the week after Irma than I have the whole rest of the time I've lived in that house. There's something about uh, a difficulty, a trial, that brings us together of one heart and of one mind and of one spirit, doesn't it? And I think part of my disappointment in that is that because that didn't happen, we just kind of continue rolling on like we do. There isn't that peace to bring us more close together. This was happening for the church in Acts chapter 4. They faced challenge and trials from the outside of them. And sometimes I wonder, is it even possible for us to feel this kind of unity without some sort of hardship on the outside driving us to it? I don't know. This experience that, that is described in Acts 4 is also talked about in Acts chapter 2. And there's lots of churches that long to recreate the experience of Acts chapter 2. And they'll name themselves that. And there's a lot of good reasons for it. Because you've got Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the amazing evangelism fervor that came into their hearts. But then you also have this part at the very end. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord. There's that unity idea. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is a beautiful description. Maybe you've had moments in time where you participated in a church community that was having that experience. They're sharing life. They're breaking bread. They're eating together. We got a little taste of this. Everybody that participated in the seven days of prayer a couple weeks ago, we got a little taste of this experience when we set up long tables in the lobby, and every evening people came from their lives, from all of the things they do, and they gathered at those tables, and we shared that meal together for that week. And it was an exquisite experience, but here's the thing we knew even as we were doing it. This is not sustainable. We can't set up tables every night in the lobby at 6 o'clock and expect that most of you will come. We can't even expect that a couple of you would come. After a while, it'd be Julie and myself and I don't know who else. Because that's not how our lives work, is it? Now, whether our lives should work the way they do or not, I don't know. But even in that week when we were having the seven days, uh, there were still things that came up. We still had board meeting. We still had uh, youth activities associated with Forest Lake Academy. There's just no such thing in our lives and in our priorities. What's described in this community in Acts is an amazing thing and and you reflect on it and you think about it and you think, if only the church could be like that. But I wanna share something with you that I believe about the, the Christian community of Acts chapter two and chapter four. It was unparalleled, it was remarkable, and even for them, it was not sustainable. It was not sustainable. I mean, let's just go down the rational road first. First of all, if you have a community, they're sharing with each each other as people have need, and those who have possessions are selling them and providing, let's go down that road. What happens when everybody finally runs out of possessions to sell? So just rationally, it's not sustainable, right? Eventually, nobody's got any property left. Now, the Lord was doing a work here because there was a simple reality coming forward. And in their faithfulness, they didn't know they were doing the right thing, but they were. They were selling these things because two things were going to happen. One was persecution was going to come on the Christians and they were going to get driven out. So what's the point having it when you got driven out? And secondly, eventually, the Romans were going to completely destroy the city anyway. So the fact that they were doing that was not a long-term crisis, but that's not a long-term sustainable model even for this community. And interestingly, this community itself will begin to have trouble as soon as the sociological mix of the believers begins to shift. Do you remember what happens when they first appoint the deacons? Do you remember why it happens? It has to do with the distribution. And the complaint was the distribution to the Greek... Jews widows was supposedly not the same as the distribution to the Hebraic Jew widows we're not even outside of race yet these are all still Jews but this model begins to break down as the diversity begins to increase and you can imagine what started to happen when not only did the diversity within that community change but now you had communities in Antioch And you had communities in Samaria and they were Samaritans. How much are you going to sell property and share with the Samaritans? Come on. And then Gentiles? You see, it was a moment in time. And it worked in an amazing way. But we've got to understand that even this was not sustainable in their context. But here's the thing. Just because it wasn't sustainable didn't mean that the principles that drove it changed. There still was the responsibility of the community to take care of its own and be a servant to those around them. That's the ideals. But the point I want you to understand most about this is not that this initial community broke down because they failed. What I want you to realize is this initial community was not sustainable because they were successful. You see, in the beginning everybody knew everybody and everybody knew what the needs were and they could share in that context easily. But as the community began to grow, that began to break down. I'll give you an example of this. So sometimes a group of people will get together and they'll come up with this brilliant evangelism strategy and and they'll, they'll do this evangelism strategy and and people will come to the lord and start to believe but the problem is once people come to the lord and start to believe you've introduced a new variable into the equation before you had evangelists and unbelievers now you have evangelists unbelievers and believers and the more successful you are the more believers you get and not every believer is an evangelist like the evangelists and the needs of believers are different than the needs of unbelievers and over time the success of evangelism is its own undoing because the more and more more believers you get the further and further you get away from unbelievers it's not our failures that often distance us it's often our successes that put us where we are. So the most destructive thing to an evangelism strategy is that it works. Because you create an entirely new dynamic. So I read a book some years ago, and it's been real impactful on me. It was, it was called Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And what this book was about was was uh, a study into why in the industrial revolution certain portions of the world industrialized very quickly and certain others did not. And there were a lot of different pieces that went in factors that went into how these things took place. I don't so much want to talk about that, but there was one chapter in particular where he broke down the realities of of any communities of people into four basic groups. Now these are assumptions, large-scale assumptions, but they work to help us understand. And these four groups that he broke everybody down, all of these communities down into, was a band, a tribe, a chiefdom, and a state. Now what he was talking about this was a band was a smaller group of people, maybe a few dozen or so, that shared life together and did life together. You could call the early church a band. They were this small group committed to each other where everybody knew each other and everyone was committed to this same singular purpose. There's very little hierarchy in a band. It's very much an egalitarian organization. It works together that way. And what happens when conflict comes up in a band? The conflict always happens between people who know each other so that conflict can be resolved directly between people that know each other. Now this is a critical thing for our Christian experience, and this is why Pastor Julie was up here earlier talking about small groups. We need that experience. If we were to equate it in a sense within this community, Sabbath school classes might well classify as a band. You go into the Sabbath school class, you pretty much know everybody that's there, and if somebody in your class has a crisis, what happens? everybody in the class steps forward how can we help what can we do they they know there's a problem they know the person that has a problem and they have a clue about how to help this is what happens in a band but there's a step beyond that and that's called the tribe and maybe if we wanted to use an example in this church we would say each of our services is like a tribe you're a part of the third service tribe you're the the largest tribe now, if, if I were to come to you and say, one of our faithful members of third services had a crisis, whether you knew them directly or not, the fact that I would use that language would be effective on your heart because you're like, oh, that's one of us. And you would be inclined to want to help out because of that connection. But the problem with the tribe is it's getting large enough that you don't necessarily know everybody anymore. And so because of that, you start to get a certain amount of hierarchy to the reality. A Sabbath school class, somebody tends to teach, but usually there's a lot of back and forth and interaction, right? Well, I just want to let you know, if you raise your hand, I'm not calling on you. That's not how this works. Because if everybody wanted to say something, we'd never get anywhere, would we? So as the size of the group changes, the way of the interactions changes, and Often, if we have a conflict in the church, we can still get together and resolve that. But there's another level here, and that is the the chiefdom. And let's call that the entire Forest Lake Church. So that's first service, second service, third service, all your Sabbath school classes. We're all in that thing together. Here's the reality. You don't know everybody in the church, do you? And that's one of the reasons sometimes people come off as unfriendly because they're in the lobby and they're like, I want to say hi, but I'm afraid I'll say hi. Are you new? And they'll say, yeah, I was new 30 years ago. (laughs) Because you just don't know. And so we get reserved, don't we? We hold back. And that dynamic of the band community begins to break down. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we, we establish policies. We establish processes. We come up with ways that we will try to work together. Because here's the problem. If you hear that somebody needs something, we become a little suspicious sometimes, don't we? Why do they need that? I don't know that person. I don't know what they need. And you want to take it even a step further, you can go to the state and we can call the, uh, the Florida Conference that, okay? There are communities of Adventist believers who believe like us that are meeting right now all over the state. And we don't even know the community's name. We don't know where they are. We don't know what they're doing. And if somebody told me they had a problem, I don't know if that's my problem or not, right? So do you see how the further we go, the further compassion gets from us? When we're in that little small group, it's easy to be compassionate. But the further we grow, the bigger we get, the harder it is to be in touch. And the more there is the opportunity for mistrust as well as corruption. So let's talk about what's happened in the Bahamas, all this destruction in the Bahamas. And already you're seeing different groups stepping forward and say, here's how you can help. So some groups, it's a donation. Other groups, it's bring these supplies. So you go to your house and you look and, oh, I have 30 cases of water that I got. Why don't I bring one of those and uh, give it for the help? That's good. And we need to do that. But it's out here, isn't it? Because you're not delivering it to anyone yourself. The compassion is still out here. How can we show compassion when we're a big group? So my wife's been doing a lot of work on the subject of compassion associated with the class she teaches at the university. And she says there's there's a difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Sympathy is my ability to see your situation and feel sorry for you. So I, I look out there and I see the island destroyed, and I'm like, wow, I'm sad about that. I feel sorry for them. Empathy is the ability to actually feel, to some degree, what that must be like. But here's the thing. Both sympathy and empathy, I still haven't done anything, have I? Compassion takes the next step. Compassion sees your situation and follows it up with a strong desire to do something about it. But how do we do it? So what we typically do is that we look for places where we have confidence, where we can make contribution and we don't think it'll be wasted because we worry about corruption, and that's valid. So I even saw an article today on on how to find uh, disaster relief scams and not give them money. There's people out there doing that. It's real. So we become careful, we become suspicious, we kind of stay back. There's two things that really keep us from being compassionate. Number one is our inherent selfishness. Number two is that some people really are lazy. Right? Some people really just aren't doing anything and are looking for someone to give them a handout. Now, now we didn't just invent this. This is a reality even in the times of Scripture. So you read that for those first couple chapters about how glorious it was in the church and how they were sharing and nobody had any needs. But then the church grows. And we find these interesting encounters uh, where Paul is writing to the church. So we go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and we find Paul writing about this. And in this context, he's attempting to address that first issue of someone has a need. Well, everybody ought to take care of them. Well, here's what he says. Uh, Well, that's 1st John. 1st Timothy, 1st Timothy, chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are very strong words, aren't they? What he's getting at here, the whole subject here is the idea of widows within the community, and the people within the community who are allowing their elderly parents or whoever they are to to rely upon the goodness of the church instead of taking care of them themselves and what he's saying here is is don't don't force everybody else to take care of your family and now this is a very important point and this goes out to to the young people here today particularly young men and also the young women as well but I definitely want the young men to hear this and I and some of you older ones may need to hear it as well you are supposed to grow up and provide for people okay that's what you're supposed to do if you're a young person you're supposed to grow up you're supposed to be responsible you're supposed to get a job and what you are able to produce is supposed to be enough for you and others around you you are to be a provider that's how it's supposed to work and you are to be a provider for all those around you in need particularly your family and Paul is attempting to address this here now there is the reality of those who grow up and don't seem to get this and Paul addresses this as well in second Thessalonians chapter 3 so second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 he says for even when we were with you we commanded you this if anyone will not work neither shall he eat now realize this is where we've gotten we started with this band that was united who had all things in common and people with possessions, sharing them so that everyone had what they needed. But people start taking advantage of these things, don't they? And we reach the point here with Paul where he's having to address this reality in the church and say, oh, no, 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 no. Just because you're a part doesn't mean you're still not responsible to provide. Everyone that can should provide. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Every community has got to figure out a way to do this because, number one, we have a responsibility to each other to provide. But number two, we, individuals, have a responsibility to be providers. Now, as organizations get bigger and bigger, the way we do these things gets more and more complex and it becomes institutional in how we do it on the one hand that's really good on the other hand sometimes it leaves us at arm's length but let me give you an example of some of the ways we do that here the gift and thrift I don't know how many of you know that much about the gift and thrift we have on our property down here they take in uh, donations from people who bring things and donate they make sales and then out of the money from the sales they make contribution to help people who come to our church in need now They do pretty well, but they don't do well enough to help everyone in America, do they? So one of the rules they've established in order to be able to do this is you have to be within a certain zip code to receive assistance from the gift and thrift here so that we're making sure we're helping our neighbors, not just becoming an outlet for people who can get here to get something. On the one hand, you hate to do that. On the other hand, you don't have a choice, do you? But the gift and thrift serves as a way that we as a church can help the people in our immediate community. What's another thing? There's another thing we do here and this one is really based for the believers and it's called Forest Lake Education Center Subsidy. So what happens is we take a portion of the church budget and we give it to the Forest Lake Education Center in order to enable more people to send their children to Forest Lake Education Center. Now here's the problem with subsidy. Subsidy means everybody pays less to have to go to school there. The problem is this, not all of you need to pay less. Some of you can afford to send your kid to a very expensive school, but you get the break because you benefit from the subsidy. There are others who even with the subsidy are having an incredibly difficult time. So maybe a, a, a better model might be that that those who don't need it don't get subsidy, and those who do get a little bit more. But here's the problem with that. Just the, the scale of the infrastructure it would take to figure that out. And the amount of intrusiveness we would have to go into your, your, your tax returns and all of your details, And I don't think you're doing that. But do you see how even our best intention sometimes breaks down in practice. The tithe structure of the Adventist church is another attempt to take from the blessing and distribute it to everyone in need. We'd like to see these decisions made in a a fair and dispassionate way. So at the church, we have this thing called finance committee filled with dispassionate people who are primarily accountants. You know who you are. (laughs) By nature, dispassionate. They try their best to make decisions for us. But here's what I want to say about that. As much as those things are all the systems we put in place to do it, it still doesn't necessarily answer what God is calling us to on a personal level. You see, helping can be complicated. But complication does not free us from obligation, does it? See, the commandment of God is pretty clear. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And then what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the early church was doing. They were loving their neighbors as themselves within that community. And that ideal still exists for us. We have that responsibility to one another. But the problem is it can get a little bit messed up. And I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 58 just real quickly because this is what happens when it gets messed up. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression... And the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? So here's this... This body of believers who are coming to the Lord and all of the the piety rules that they know of and trying to do all these things to impress God. But it doesn't seem like God's impressed. They go on. In fact, this is God's answer. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You do not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high, is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, and acceptable day to the Lord? So what's being described here is very intentional uh, worship and, and humbling yourself visibly. But it's all very self-centered, isn't it? The things I'm denying myself. The things I'm doing to, to impress God. But now watch, watch the twist that God puts on this. Starts in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. And that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him. And not hide yourself from your own flesh. What God is really calling us to in this idea of compassion is not some sort of self-affliction It's that we would do good to those around us that we would have true compassion So our example for this is Jesus So Jesus could have sat in heaven and had sympathy For our condition, right? Boy, they really look miserable. That's really sad. Or he could have had empathy. Man, I can kind of feel their pain. But both of those stop without action. Jesus had compassion. So, what does compassion do? Compassion leaves the throne. Comes to be one of us and gives his life for us. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes these words Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal to, with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of the man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is the example of compassion and sacrifice. And because of this, we're set free. But what's the implication here? Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 and 14. This is the implications of what Jesus did. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the early church was doing. And they figured out how to do it in their day. If you're a part of a little small group, then you probably have those compassion dynamics at work there. But we as a larger group have some responsibilities that are even bigger than that. So how do we do it in our day? Well, I would say we're a long ways from figuring out all of how we do it in our day. But I will also say what we're attempting next Sabbath is an attempt for us to show compassion. So as you know, and as we've told you for quite a while, next Sabbath is going to be a different day. We're not going to have our usual service the way we do. This is for believers primarily. I mean, it would be nice if an unbeliever came in and as a result of the worship wanted to be a part of what we're doing. But next Sabbath, we're going to be intentional to do things for others, not just for us. And so that's why you've been seeing all these different ones coming week after week and talking about the different things they're participating in. That's why Jennifer's been working to get everyone registered so that you have a place to go and something meaningful that you can do next week. This is the larger purpose. This is a chance for us to show compassion. Jesus showed that great compassion when He came. And and in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, when He came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus came to do God's will to show compassion that we might be saved. Here's the challenge I want to give to you. I want want you to, to live this verse. Next Sabbath, I want this to be in your heart. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. To serve. Not to be served but to serve, not to have sympathy, not to have empathy, but to have compassion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you will help us to have eyes, not just eyes that see, but eyes that translate into a heart that cares, into hands and feet that act.